through Acts chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible with you, I have one in the back there. And you can open it also to uh, Acts chapter 9. This morning, we are uh, going to uh, pick up uh, in verse 31, uh, where we ended last week. Um, And so first we will pray, then we'll read the passage under consideration, then we'll make observation and application um, as we divide the text. So let us pray together. Father in heaven, we believe that you are able to work miracles. We believe the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it heals from the sickness of sin. We believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring life to dead souls. By your grace this morning, we ask that Jesus would heal us this morning, that he would bring to us abundant life, and that, Lord, by your grace, you would use us as instruments to bring to bear the healing power of Jesus and new life by the Spirit, by the power of his resurrection, And we ask all of these things in the only name by which one may be saved, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you are able, uh, would you stand for the reading of the infallible, inerrant word of God from Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside him. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known through all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is God's word. You may be seated. I pray that you all will bear with me a little this morning as I had serious uh, communication issues with my computer and printer and all kinds of things uh, happening in the last few days. So uh, half of my sermon notes made it here with me. The other half are in somewhere. They are somewhere. 
So I'm just praying that the Lord would give me grace uh, this morning as we dive into this. I want to pose this question to us this morning, though. Have you witnessed a miracle? If you look to your left, if you don't have anybody seated to your left, look to your right. If you have people seated both ways, look both left and right. The person to your left or the person to your right was once dead in their trespasses and sins. The person to your left or to your right was once unable and unwilling to please God. The degree to which the Christian understands the miracle of salvation in Jesus Christ, I believe is the measure of their commitment to the Great Commission to make disciples. See, agents of the Great Commission are church members who believe that God performs miracles. It is a miracle. Like if, if, if you want to reflect on other people and look to your left and to your right and say, you know, there's a, there's a miracle sitting next to me because this person believes, right? And if, if you ever doubt that, that somebody who you love is so hard-hearted and so opposed to the gospel that they'll never come to faith. If, if you get to that point where you just, like, I just don't know, it's a, they're done. All you have to do to get rid of that thinking is to remember, remember just how offensive you once were before holy God. Just remember how much mercy and grace was given to you. That how you one day could look at this book and just think that they were words on a page and they meant nothing to you. And then one day, no different than the other day, it's not all of a sudden you became a better reader. You looked at the words on the page and you were like, this is a, these are alive, that everything that it says is true and that this Jesus is real. That's a miracle. It is a miracle that was worked by God in you. Agents of the Great Commission are church members who believe that God performs miracles. Agents of the Great Commission understand that without the shed blood of Jesus, that there is no forgiveness of sin. Agents of the Great Commission proclaim healing and new life in Jesus Christ, trusting that Christ is alone is the one who heals, that alone in Christ can the dead be made to live. In other words, God is the performer of the miracle of salvation. I think when we forget the miracle of salvation, the miracle that it was for us, we can kind of get complacent about proclaiming our faith to others. We can also think that somehow I need to be a special kind of Christian with special kinds of talent in order to get anyone to hear and receive the word of God. But when we trust that it is a miracle is a miracle of God that anyone would have their heart of stone turned to flesh that they might believe. If we trust in the God of miracles, maybe we wouldn't be so shy in proclaiming 
the truth of the gospel. Let's look at verse 31 and get some context to what we're doing here. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So after the conversion uh, of Saul, then the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, they enjoyed a time of peace and a time of multiplication. The persecution that had come at the hand of Saul, God used for the advance of the gospel and for the growth and stability of the church. As we look at our passage today, it's going to shift toward the mission to the Gospels. And our passage here fits in a larger section, uh, chapter 9, beginning at verse 32 and ending at chapter 12, verse 25. In this new section, it sets up uh, this new expansion uh, of the church. And in this new expansion, we're going to see uh, soon that there's a, there's a question for the church. The church has a couple of questions. Is like, what kind of attitude ought we to have toward non-Jews? And do we require that non-Jewish converts live like Jews? Well, we'll begin to answer these questions more as we explore chapter 10. But as part of this section, we're going to get two uh, miracle narratives. In the larger section, there are two miracle sections. There's the miracle section here in uh, 32 through 43. And then uh, there's there's two miracles kind of together here that are meshed into one narrative. And then later in chapter 12, we see uh, Peter's imprisonment and then his miraculous release. So after chapter 12, though, just a note to to realize that after chapter 12, Peter virtually kind of drops off the scene in the uh, Luke-Acts narrative, and, and, and it's taken up by Paul's missionary kind of journeys and all of those things. So here, Peter, uh, he travels, and uh, he travels. his travels include Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And it's likely what Peter is doing here is following up on the evangelism done by Philip. Because Philip had been there and, and had proclaimed the gospel and many were being saved, right? And now Peter, in a time of peace, can actually have the time kind of to, the persecution is, is subsided a bit and now the church is at peace and now uh, Peter goes out to kind of follow up with those whom Philip evangelized. I was thinking about this this week and, and thinking about this as we've studied um, this passage. And the reason why I'm for those of you who are, who are newer here or are visiting today, and I'm talking a lot about the Great Commission, is that as we think about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is really the Great Commission in action. It is the Holy Spirit-empowered uh, apostles and the rest of those who are converted who bring that gospel to bear in the Great Commission. So it's the Great Commission really in action. When we think of the Great Commission... Don't we often just think of evangelism? Somebody talks about being a, a great commission saint. We think only in terms of evangelism. That is, we think like of making disciples of all nations through the proclamation of the gospel, which is certainly true. But we think that, and then it's kind of, we, we drop that off, and we think that's the sum of of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, to be evangelists, to go out and spread the word throughout the globe. But the Great Commission is that, 
But it's more. The proclamation of gospel is really the beginning of the work, isn't it? Proclaiming the truth about Jesus and the gospel is just the beginning of our work. It's not the end of it. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that basically we are to invest our lives. We invest our lives in those who by the miracle of God have received the gospel. Those who have repented and believed, uh, we are to follow up with them, to invest in them. Not only we're to take them into the community through baptism, but we're also to continue to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. What will be clear from our passage today is that Jesus is the Jesus who saved, is the Jesus who continues to heal, who continues to sanctify us. The Jesus who saved us is the Jesus who renews us again and again to new life. The cure that saved us is the same cure that nurtures faith, the same cure that brings us life when we return to the things that we, 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 we once held dear but are really dead to us. It is in Jesus Christ that we go back for healing. It is in Jesus' name that we are healed and renewed. It is in Jesus that we walk in newness of life. So what does this mean? This means that the Great Commission still goes across the aisle as well as across town and across the globe. Because who doesn't, how many of you in here do not need a daily reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many in here do not need to be reminded that Jesus paid it all? That his death was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God when you've stepped in it deep, when you're off in the weeds. You need a reminder, I need a reminder that Jesus died for my sin and that he didn't stay dead, that on the third day God raised him up. God raised him up that I might have new life and that in him and in his shed blood and by his grace, I can walk new. I have been made new and I can walk new by his power. See, Jesus is our only cure. Jesus is the cure for the brother who annoys you or the sister who's you know is steeped in some sort of sin. Jesus is her cure. Yes, she's been cured. She's been saved. She has new life. But when she's mired in the depths of sin, it is the same Savior that we need to speak to that sister or that brother. Jesus saves. Jesus heals. I'm saying all that to say this because of where Peter finds himself and who Peter finds himself with. Verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. 
And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Peter finds Aeneas in Lydda, and it was on the route from Jerusalem to the coast. It was about 25 miles away. And it is believed that Aeneas is a Christian. And here he is. He's a Christian who is paralyzed. He's bedridden. And he's in need of miraculous healing. Before I get too far into the healing of Aeneas, I want us to understand something. That context in the scripture is always king. And our first step in understanding the meaning of the scripture is to grasp the text uh, according to the culture in the biblical time, to uh, capture the text in ways where we try to understand what was unique about the period, what was unique about the audience, what's unique about the characters of the text. Then we want to measure the distances or differences between the original uh, context and our own. Then we want to look for the principle of the passage. What truth is being applied here in this passage? And how then is that truth, that principle, how does it apply to all people in all places and in every way? So I want us to get this as a background because the context here is important to see that The apostolic ministry of Peter and others was unique to that time period. What did it take to be an apostle? To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To be an apostle, you had to be taught by Jesus personally. To be an apostle and to have the apostolic authority, one had to have that authority given to them by Jesus. So during the early period of the church, the apostles were given authority to heal and to raise from the dead, just as Jesus did. But this was unique to the apostolic era. This was to launch the church. But Peter here is very clear that it is Jesus who heals. The author Luke is clear that it is Jesus who heals Aeneas. The healing of Ananus has an obvious parallel in Luke chapter 5. Would you turn there with me to uh, Luke 5, uh, verse 17 uh, through 26. Verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him down before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise 
pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been laying on and he went home glorifying God. And amazement, amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. As we look at our text, we see that the apostle had the authority to heal Ananias. And looking at our passage and thinking about the parallel passage we just read in Luke, we can come to what principle uh, can the Christian take and apply this to our daily lives. Because you see, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, our friends have a paralyzing disease. They have a paralyzing disease called sin. The disease of sin continues to rise up. It continues to rise up in our brothers and sisters, often in the church as we sin against one another from time to time. But we have the cure. We speak Jesus Christ into the lives of the non-Christian and the Christian alike, knowing that in Christ there is healing, that in the name of Jesus there is forgiveness of sin. Ponder this for a second. I've, I've said this before in other uh, times. But when you pray, when you think about prayer, and you've got a, maybe a prayer list and all kinds of things that you do, sometimes our prayer lists, um, if we just prayed those uh, alone, nobody outside of ourselves would benefit if God said yes to our prayers. Sometimes we can pray really selfishly. And when we look at this passage, I want us to think about this. Who benefits? Who benefits when a brother or a sister is restored to health? Who benefits? Well, certainly, Ananias benefited. But who else? Who else? Well, chapter 9 tells us who else. The residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. An innumerable number. Uh, Luke here uses all of the residents. And this is one of the cases when all doesn't really mean all. It was such a large number that they could not be numbered. The many who turned to the Lord, having witnessed Ananias being healed. So a numerable number of citizens turn in repentance and faith to the Lord. Who benefits when we speak the truth in love to a brother or sister in the Lord? Who benefits? A brother or sister benefits for sure, right? Who benefits when we restore a, a backslidden church member back into the fold and back into faith? Who benefits when we follow up on the Great Commission command to make disciples, teaching one another to observe all that Jesus commanded? Who benefits? Well, the hearer benefits. The church benefits and then it builds itself up in love. And we declare to the watching world that forgiveness of sin can be had in one name alone, in Jesus Christ. So here, what was the aim of the healing of 
brother Aeneas. Ultimately, what came out of the furtherance of the gospel, the good news was spread. Sure, Aeneas had some some benefit, right? Uh, Paralyzed for eight years. He's now healed and he gets up and walks, but that's, that's sort of almost like beyond the point. Because the point is that the gospel was expanding, that this was just a proof of the truth that had been declared before. That this, that, that, that the miracle of forgiveness can be had. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men and urging them, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he had arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. So Peter is called again to a disciple. He's called to the disciple Dorcas or Tabitha. I kind of would think that Dorcas would be a tough name in this day and age to be, have somebody saddled with, right? Saddled with the name Dorcas. That's my name. I've been called that maybe by my kids, but different context. But anyway, he, he comes in this, this is a disciple um, of Jesus Christ already. It tells us right there, a disciple named Tabitha. So this is one who was a disciple who was then dead. And Peter is summoned to come that he might speak and bring her to life. Well, you see, what I want to get at is that with these two miracles together, the the same aim, the same outcome ultimately happens through the, the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Tabitha. It is that many believed in the Lord. Many believed in the Lord. And new life was given to her. Well, she already had new life, right? But don't we need reminders often that we have new life in us? That we have been made new? We talked a lot about this in Sunday school this morning about, you know, what is it that we, how, how is it that we, as a church uh, body, as a, as a group of believers, you know, you, you hear lots of things in the world saying, don't judge. Well, no, we don't judge. We remind you of who you are 
We remind you that you have been given new life. And when we speak the gospel again, we speak the words of life into your soul. I used to uh, talk to uh, youth group kids about the idea of when you've been given new life and you're kind of walking on this new path in Christ and you're walking down this, this world and you have a new agenda and you have a new vision. And what is it that we often do when we have this new life? We turn around and pick up old baggage and turn around and try to walk with this old baggage. These things are dead. You picked up death and you decided to carry death around with you. So when, when we are speaking to another brother or sister, we're not judging them or condemning them to, to, to hell or anything. When we're telling them the truth is, let go of dead things. Let go of dead things. Embrace new life. You are new. And you should walk in newness of life. Well, both of these stories, of course, uh, here have their parallel in the Gospels. Luke is trying to make uh, a serious point here for the believers and for us. And the point is that although it was the hand of Peter by which the paralyzed walked, although it was by the, the, the hand of Peter that he raised up Tabitha and walked with her, it was Jesus Christ who saves, and it was Jesus Christ who gave new life. So important for us to remember that because here's the thing. You and I are not apostles, but you and I are born again followers of Jesus Christ and we have in us the very same power. It is the power of Jesus Christ. We speak the truth of the gospel to those who are maimed and lamed by their sin. We do that with our brothers and sisters because I want us to know this, that these two are already believers, Ananias and Tabitha. We need to speak the truth of the gospel to each other daily. We need, we need to, we have this power within us. We have the Christ that is in us like we, like we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning is that the law of God is written upon our hearts. We know because we know him. We can speak that truth into a person's life and say, you know what? This is paralyzing you. You are debilitated, brother or sister, by the weight of sin. This is not how you learned Jesus. Put that mat away, as it was, that he was laying on. Put the baggage down and get up and walk. And the same with those of uh, our brothers and sisters who might be mired deeply in sin for a long period of time, right? You are embracing death. 
You are holding on to dead things. And we speak the truth of the gospel in their lives and we speak new life. Don't mire in the grave, brother and sister. Get up. Rise from the dead. Let go of dead things. Embrace the life that Jesus Christ has for us. Well, this morning, as we conclude, I want us to uh, take a pause and reflect upon God's word. And as we prepare our hearts to uh, take the Lord's table together, I think we should think about the broken bread as, as we came lame, paralyzed, and broken by sin. And Jesus was broken in our stead, mending us and bringing us uh, to faith and restoration in relationship with the Father. And that while we were dead, Christ made a new covenant with his people. He made a covenant in his blood that he shed his blood for us and the Father raised him from the dead and we have this new life in Christ. And as we take of the table together this morning, let us remember that.